Welcome to Save What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. Today's conversation is with my friend Richard Peterson, who has served four terms as the president of the Central Council of Tlingit and Haida Indians in Southeast Alaska. Richard is Tlingit from the Kaguantan clan, and his traditional name is Shakyatish. We met in 2012 in his home village of Kasan, out on Prince of Wales Island in Southeast Alaska, nestled in the Tongass National Forest. Kasan is a, frankly, magical place that feels like it's been held in time, and it's got profound beauty all around it. It's been the central point of contact and grounding for Richard during his life, and he's gone through a bunch. We talk about it on the program, uh, and we talk about the correlating streams of recovery that both Richard and I have gone through, and how that has turned into a tremendous source of leadership for him and the work that he's doing, both personally and with the tribes that he represents, and also with this incredibly special place in Southeast Alaska. Hope you enjoy the show today. If you get a chance, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or write a review in your own words. It helps us get our visibility up and out in the world, and it helps other people be able to listen to this podcast as well. Lastly, on Ava's Wild today, we are launching a new summer grilling special. So if you're into grilling salmon and you want that taken care of for the entire summer, head over to avaswild.com. That's safe, spelled backwards, wild.com. And inside you'll find an action kit to help protect Bristol Bay. You'll find both versions of the breach and the wild and a three-month subscription to Wild Bristol Bay Sockeye Salmon. A portion of the proceeds for every one of these kits goes directly back to United Tribes of Bristol Bay, working to protect Bristol Bay permanently right now. Thanks again. Enjoy the show. We'll see you next week. Mr. President, welcome. Hey, Mark. How's it going? It's good. You know, today as we record this, it's Earth Day, I say in air quotes. This is wildly oversimplified, but it seems to me like every day was and is Earth Day for Indigenous folks. Not just like one, uh, but here's the rest of the world observing, uh, you know, this day in support of our home life system, this planet we're on. What do you think of all this? Well, you know, as a president of Clinkett and Haida, you know, being a, an indigenous person and living and coming from a small village where, you know, it's really our way of life, right? Like, man, everything was dependent on um, the resources, our wildlife, our plant life and weather. So to me, um, it's pretty awesome that it's finally starting to get recognized at the level it is. It's also just tragically sad, right? That like here in the United States in the year 2021, you know, we're finally kind of getting to the point where um, it's not voodoo or witchcraft we're talking about when we talk about climate change and all of that. And, you know, 
I know there's still a lot of politics around things, but, you know, we have someone talking about, you know, the Green New Deal. And I, I feel like we're finally catching up with some of the other countries, you know. Yeah. And, you know, the th- I've spent some time, fair amount of time in Southeast. And um, I just got to say, your your home is uh, the place that's closest in my heart. I've close, closest that I feel connected um, to something bigger than myself. And, um, you know, beyond all the politics, beyond all of the rhetoric and the policy, it's just like, it just seems like it's the way things should be, you know? Like, yeah, you know, I think sometimes I grew up in a really small village, about 80 people, you know, and and when I grew up, we didn't even have road access. It was float plane or boat. You had to really want to be there. And, um, you know, for me, I I could take off my shoes and and put my feet in the same sand, you know, that my ancestors were 10,000 years ago. And that really impacts me when I take the time to stop and think about it. And that way of life that, you know, we don't feel like we own the land. We feel like the land owns us. Right. And and we have a sacred obligation to protect these resources and, and it's really frustrating to see what's happened. I come from Prince of Wales Island and, you know, I, I'm not necessarily against resource extraction or anything like that. But, you know, I've watched it happen in ways where, you know, my village, um, you know, we had to be put on boil water notice for over a year because our watershed was decimated because of the logging. You know, they, they create buffers, but, you know, they don't stand up to the climate, to the winds and Next thing you know, you you have boulders and trees coming down your watershed, um, you know, so people don't think about those kind of um, consequences. And, uh, yeah, it, it's really tough to see. And I, I think of my village growing up there when it was just pristine, uh, you know, to, to sit in the Tongass, to walk through the forest. And, you know, the only trees that I saw taken down were, by us for use to build our homes or even like a traditional um, cultural trees, you could find stumps where they had cut them down over a hundred years ago to carve a canoe or, or totem poles or, or to the longhouses. And so now to look at a field of uh, stumps is really tough. You know, um, you see the impact it has on our salmon streams. You know, uh, when I was a kid, right in the village, you could catch, you know, 60, 70 pound king salmon all day long. I haven't seen a, a fish that big in 20 years. You know, it, it's, it hurts to see that. Well, we're going to really dive into some of the challenges facing Southeast Alaska and um, all of us, really. But um, first, I want to do a little bit of bragging about you um, because you're an extraordinary man. And um, I'm just going to give our audience here a little idea of who we're dealing with. Uh, Prior to being elected as president of the Central Council of the Tlingit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska, which is what you're doing now, uh, that was in 2014 you were elected to that, Richard served as CEO of Prince of Wales Tribal Enterprise Consortium. Also the president of the organized village of Kassan, where you are from and where I visited you, uh, the mayor of the city council and a city council member for the city of Kassan. 
and a member of the Southeast Island School District Board of Education. Right now, you represent over 32,000 Tlingit and Haida tribal citizens in Alaska and outside the state. Mr. President, man, you you have been doing a lot in your short life here. Um, it makes me feel uh, grateful to know you and a, a little envious. Um, and uh, congratulations on everything you've been doing. Um, I know that uh, the people that I know in the, the wider world are, speak so highly of you. And um, it's it's really something to, to see your achievements and uh, in your your community thrive due to your leadership. So congratulations. Well, going to cheese however for that. Um, kind of embarrassed. <laughs> you know, I, I uh, just blessed to grow up where I have to have the foundation of my culture. I think that really lifts me up. Um, you know, I've been really, really blessed to be in a position to do the, what I'm doing and to serve our people. Um, I look at it as service. You know, I, I consider myself a service leader. Um, you know, I know I'm not the boss. Those 30, nearly 33,000 tribal citizens are, are who I answer to, you know, and we're just trying to make sure that we, we have every opportunity to make sure that our citizens um, can be the best versions of themselves. And so we utilize our tribal status and the tools given to us to you know, make sure we can do that to make sure that we're advocating to make sure that we're providing opportunity. And, and then, you know, looking at our resources, our, our lands and our waters, the, the animals and making sure that we're doing what we can to advocate for those. And I take that as a really sacred um, responsibility. Uh, I, you know, you're going to hear me say blessed a lot. I, I really feel blessed. You know, not no perfect person by any means have made my fair share of mistakes. But, you know, every time, you know, and I, I've dealt with everything you can think of in my life from, you know, coming from, uh, you know, dealing with historical trauma, dealing with uh, some of the things that folks just shouldn't have to. And then going through even my own addiction. And, uh, you know, and that's something I openly talk about is I got 17 years clean and uh, that's important to me because it was my culture that got me through. It was my culture that lifted me up. And I think that's, you know, we live by our cultural values. And we, we uh, you know, one of those cultural values is lift each other up. And I'm here today because so many have just lifted me up. Sometimes when I felt like nobody should even acknowledge me, let alone lift me, they did. And so I feel a really um, sacred obligation to continue doing that and to pay it back and pay it forward. And I can say, for one, as a beneficiary of this, that you are. And congratulations on 17 years. That's that's a miracle. That's wonderful. Um, I'll be celebrating four one day at a time here uh, next month. And uh, I have exactly the same reflection that it is just absolutely upon being blessed with grace and with a community that loved me when I couldn't love myself. So I, I am hearing you all day on that. I want to also go further and beyond the public leadership and the public figure that you are, um, here's how I know you. This is the first time we got to meet. And this was in 2012 and was in uh, Alaska filming for The Breach, uh, my first documentary. And um, 
you generously invited me and my two uh, uh, teammates to come to the village of Kassan and film, do an interview, and to also um, check out the Whale House and the incredible cultural center that is there. And we got down totally miscalculated (laughs) on the map how far it was from Craig on Prince of Wales Island to get to Kassan and what kind of a road it was. So we got there at just before dusk and this is summertime. So, um, been driving and working all day and finally got some images out at the gorgeous whale house, which I'm going to let you explain in a minute, but, um, we're starving. And (laughs) I remember, um, coming back to the village and, um, I asked, you know, I, I asked you on the phone if, there was a restaurant and you just, you laughed at me. And, um, and then we came to your house and we were going to set up to do an interview with you and we're all beat and we're all exhausted. And I came around the corner in the kitchen and there you were, and you, you were preparing this meal for us with smoked salmon and mayo and pilot bread. And it, it was such a simple thing and it was such a beautiful, generous thing. And it's the best thing I've ever put in my mouth. I was mm-hmm. so hungry and I was so grateful for that act of generosity and kindness and hospitality that you showed me and my crew. Um, and I'll never forget that. Uh, that That's who I got to meet first mm-hmm. as the the president of uh, the Tlingit and Haida people. And the it's something I want to pass and pay forward as well. Uh, that that's just such a, a generous thing that you did, and I I will never forget that till the day I die. But this is this place that you come from, Kassan, on Prince of Wales Island. It's a very special place, and the whale house that I mentioned. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like growing up there, and why it's so special, and what what somebody would see if they were to walk into that very special place? Yeah, it, it's kind of like uh, when you walk out the trail to the whale house, it's um, kind of like going through time. And, you know, it sounds like I'm romanticizing it, but I think I actually do it no justice. You know, you walk through this wooded trail and, and you all of a sudden amongst these, you know, hemlock and spruce and cedars, you start seeing these figures start to kind of pop out and kind of almost transforming, right? And all of a sudden you realize you're seeing totem poles amongst the, the timber. And then you come around the corner and there's this giant house. It's, and it's completely traditional. There isn't a single modern convenience about it, right? There's no nails in it. It's, it's literally built. Um, it was built in the 1800s. It was restored several times uh, just a couple of years ago. I think uh, I want to say 2017. Uh, the village uh, celebrated its uh, most recent restoration and a crew of local um, Haida men and, and a few ladies that jumped in uh, really restored that um, folks there in Kassan, Stormy Hamer, Eric Hamer, um, Harley Bell Holter. Uh, these young, these guys came together and they, you know, did it old school and they packed those lumbers up the beach. I mean, huge timbers too, like not two by fours or four by fours. I'm talking like 20 by eight, you know, huge timbers, packed them up on their backs and put them back into place, carved, 
hand carved. They're all ads, which uh, if people know ads is a traditional uh, tool of Pacific Northwest carving tool, kind of looks like an elbow with a blade and, and they add every single piece of that. And, uh, you know, it's uh, originally the chief sunny hats home and who was uh, one of the last chiefs there in Kassan. And so it, it's pretty spectacular. It's, it's kind of like this magic place in the, in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, Kassan's one of two Haida villages in Alaska um, coming from Haida Gwaii in BC. And uh, so it's a pretty special place. It's the oldest village, you know, uh, Haida village in Alaska and uh, has just this amazing history. And if you're, I think if you're fortunate enough, if you really, like I said, Sam's a place you want to have to be, right? You, you said it in your intro, like you miscalculated how long it is to get there. It, it's a trek, you know, and nowadays you can drive, but, you know, it's either like, uh, boat or airplane from Ketchikan or you can drive to the rest of Prince of Wales but it's a pretty magical place I think uh, I really grew up um, very special blessed to be there to kind of run wild and free and not have to worry about anything any of the scary stuff that happened outside you know um, you could just run wild and, and I got to grow up in that longhouse I got to play in it I camped in it um, it's probably one of the most special places uh, in my life to this day. I, I can't imagine, honestly, it, I've only spent a, a little time there and it's, there's a few places you go to in your life and you know, you're in the presence of something very special and bigger than, um, ourselves. Bigger than ourselves. And it's a place of reverence. Um, and, something mystical beyond, you know, my comprehension. Um, we have, we're going to put some pictures up in our Instagram feed, uh, about what this looks like and they won't even do it justice. But, um, I'd love to hear from you too, about what your story is, what it was like growing up a little bit more and, and how you found your path to leadership that you are in. I know it didn't come easily and it rarely does. Um, could you give us a little bit of uh, a more in-depth view of what what it's been like to to find your way into this role of leadership? Sure. You know, in this day and age of talking about things like racial inequities and things, you know, you hear the word privilege a lot. And it's usually not one that we're using on ourselves, but I feel like I grew up privileged. Um, I, I was privileged to grow up in a traditional place as an indigenous person. Um and, and feel that connection and always know who I am. So many people don't know who they are beyond, you know, right now. And even then, you know, a lot of people deal with stuff because they're disconnected. And I, I was really blessed, you know, to grow up there, have so many opportunities. You know, when I was a kid, we used to run around in 16 foot skiffs. And, you know, I mean, I was nine, 10 years old. And running around in a skiff and, and having adventures, camping, hunting, you know, fishing. And, you know, I think now my nieces and nephews, I see that are that age. I was like, oh, my God, I'd never let them run around by themselves, you know, do these things. Um, but, you know, it wasn't without its hardships. My parents worked really hard to provide, um, you know, and 
they just had to make a lot of sacrifices to provide and work. And my dad had to travel because there's not a lot of work. So he, you know, he went and built roads, logging roads of all things. Um, and, uh, you know, and then our school, I, I grew up in a one, one room schoolhouse K-12, right? And my parents had kind of decided at a certain point they wanted more opportunity for me. So um, I went off to Mount Edgecombe in Sitka, which is a boarding school. Had, had traditionally been a, a native-only boarding school, but, you know, uh, back in the 80s, the state took it over, so it was open. To, but it was still, it's still predominantly, even to this day, a uh, majority native from villages all across Alaska. So I also feel blessed there because I, I really got to meet a lot of different people, people that, you know, 30 years later are still some of my best friends in life. And they're leaders in their villages. And I think that's kind of what set it up for me. And and that's not anything I ever wanted. In fact, I thought I wanted to like move to the lower 48. And, you know, I was supposed to go to Harvard and, you know, my, my path deviated and I didn't end up going. But, you know, um, I think that set a lot of foundation for me. And then just growing up in a small village, um, you know, my mom was on every board. You know, she our our Indian Health Board. She was on there for over twenty five years. So, you know, I grew up with that sense of responsibility. I think of, you know, you have to give to your community. Um, so that happened. But I I had taken a breather and moved home, and um, you know, it was pretty wild. My uh, best friend's dad was uh, the mayor, and he he died, and I'm sitting there and. Like you're talking about who's going to replace them, and someone says he will, and I kind of look behind me like who's that? And I was against the wall, <laughs> you know. So I, I kind of got thrust into it, and I was like the youngest mayor in state history for a while, for wow. like over 20 years. Um, so yeah, you know, I just got kind of thrust into service, and there was always this, well, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go back to school, I'm going to do these things, and then just kind of. I kept kind of getting more and more involved. And at a certain point in life, I realized I had been put on the path I was meant to be on. You know, I, I thought I wanted other things in life and um, wanted to live in the lower 48 and this and that and realized I can't stand to be away from the ocean. I, mm -hmm. I don't want to be anywhere where there's not trees all around me. Um, that's where I feel comfort and at home and so I just kept doing that. And, you know, for some reason, I could never say no to anything either. So as I was kind of serving, you know, mayor, tribal president in the village, um, you know, hey, we need somebody on the school board. Okay, I'll do that. And then, oh, hey, we, you should be the president of the school board. Okay, I'll do that. And, and then uh, we got uh, our tribe had an opportunity. We got into government contracting. And I really cut my teeth on that and learned about government contracting and, and bringing money back to our tribe and, and supporting and having some economic sovereignty, you know, because one thing you'll hear me talk about is we're only as sovereign as we can afford to be. You know, unfortunately, that's just a reality. Mm -hmm. And especially as we have to defend our resources, you know, I think of the tribes that are dealing, you know, in Bristol Bay that have to deal with fighting pebble which every time we think that's a, a dead beast they just keep coming back right and it yeah. takes so much money it's it's really sad that it takes money you know to fend off and, and to protect our resources our ancestral homelands and it's really all about money so 
I kind of got the mindset, okay, well, we'll make our own money and do our own things. And that kind of drove, drove me for a long time. And then back in 2000, I got, became a delegate to Clinkett and Haida, which was our regional tribe. And, uh, uh, gosh, about, I guess it's 17 years ago now, I uh, ran for a vice president, just kind of wanting that experience to see what it was like. I didn't think I was going to get on, and then I did. Uh, and then I served for about 10 years as a, as a vice president. We had our tribal council, the Clinton Hyde is made up of six vice presidents and then our president. And uh, uh, our president had announced he was going to retire. And, and we were kind of like, gosh, who's going to do this, you know? And, and I, honestly, it's not something I sought out. I had uh, some people say, you need to do it. And I was like, Ugh, no, I I'm not it. I can't do this. And, um, uh, but decided, okay, one of the things that we talk about in our culture is when you're asked to stand up, you stand up. And so I did. And uh, very, again, really kind of ha- surprised. I became president of Clinton Ida back in 2014. And, and now I think I'm in my fourth term uh, okay, every two years. And it, it's um, been the hardest the toughest thing I've ever done, but the most rewarding and fulfilling. And I feel like we're, um, I was really left a legacy to work from, you know, I didn't have to rebuild our tribe wasn't in trouble, but it gave me a lot of freedom to kind of start doing new things and taking the philosophy of economic sovereignty, you know, and, uh, my mantras, I, I keep preaching. If you hear me speak is healthy tribes make healthy communities. I, you know, and I think that's really important. It's not an us versus them. Our sovereignty doesn't threaten anybody else's. We can all happily coexist and, and we should, and we should all thrive together. And so that's been my mantra. And, you know, we have nearly 33,000 citizens across the world, a majority no longer even in Alaska. And so it's like, how do we, how do they feel connected to us? How do we serve them? And so now one of my new mantras is we need to meet them where they're at. And so just recently, we opened an office in Seattle. Uh, we have an Indian child welfare uh, attorney there and some caseworkers. Uh, we just are signing on a property in Anchorage, and we're going to open an office in Anchorage. And by next year, we're going to have an office in California. And those, are, and those are large population centers for us, which sounds really strange to people, you know, a Southeast Alaska tribe. But um, you know, back in the day, they had um, BIA had these relocation programs and they'd move our people, you know, for they'd kind of dangle the carrot of education and, and jobs and say, you need to move away. It was really their way to get rid of us, I, I believe, you know, mm-hmm. to assimilate us and, and get us out of their way so they could access the resources. But, you know, but be that as it may, a lot of our folks are living across the world. And, you know, one of our tribal citizens is the mayor of San Diego. Another one of our tribal citizens, Deborah Leknoff, is in the Washington State Legislature. You know, we have really high-performing folks, and and how do we connect to them? How do we bring them back, you know? And I think um, we've gone through this pandemic, and one of my commitments is being stronger on the other side of it than when we went in. And I think technology is allowing us that. You know, we've been doing things through Zoom and connecting and I think we're going to start doing a lot of our classes through our vocational center and our cultural classes and all those things we'll start being able to do through technology and and reach our people where they're at. I'm so inspired by everything you just talked about. 
um, it really is inspired work. As an indigenous leader, um, what and you've been in this for a little while now, four terms. That's that's incredible. What are the the three biggest challenges, two or three biggest challenges uh, to your people as you see them navigating po- a post-COVID world, as you just said? What, what are you prioritizing right now? You, you know, I think one of the biggest um, obstacles, honestly, is ourselves and just how we see um, serving our people and We've had this mindset of this is how it's always been, so that's how it should always be. And so we really need to change how we're, we're doing that. And that's, again, that meeting our, our citizens where they're at. But I think access is is huge, you know. And I live, I live in southeast Alaska. I now live in Juneau, you know, which to me is a big city, 33,000 people, uh, 32,000, somewhere around there. You know, I come from a village of 80, so this is a metropolitan to me. But, but you know the Alaska Marine Highway, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, has really been um, sacrificed to politics. And, you know, last year we saw communities that have no access um, other than the Marine Highway, basically, or float plane or wheel plane, and um, just denied access. You know, only way to get a car into your community is this ferry system. For some people with medical conditions can't get out for appointments without the ferry system and and they went over a month without service. So access, um, both physical uh, transportation, but then also, you know, we, we're living in a digital age and we don't wanna be left behind. You know, we're trying to catch up to that digital age and make sure that um, we're bringing high-speed internet to our community. So our, our kids are given every educational opportunity, telemedicine, but you know, we have a lot of amazing artists as you well know. And we're, mm-hmm. you know, for some of them who are able to figure out how to market themselves and market their art, um, the internet's a very valuable and exciting tool. And, you know, if you would have asked me, hey, I want to work for Clinkett and Haida two years ago, but I, I don't want to leave my village or, oh, I want to live, you know, I, I live in Utah, you know, whatever, I'm making that up. Um, I would have said, no, sorry. But now, you know, we have over 300 employees and we've sent everybody home to work from home. And that was a real challenge. So now we've learned we can do it. And so why not create jobs and opportunities for our citizens wherever they are, if they have internet. And, you know, we've seen the out migration in our villages and it's been devastating. We've seen really vibrant, rich communities, you know, starting to suffer because um, folks are having to feel like they move, they feel like they have to move away for jobs, education, whatever opportunities they think they're not getting. And I think we can turn the tide on that. If we start creating, you know, and hiring in our villages, you know, and you give somebody, you know, a solid $60,000 an hour a year job, well, in, in Juneau or Seattle, that might be a low wage. In the village, that could be a huge wage, and it, it could turn the tide and keeping families and keeping kids in for school. You know, I think so. Access and that is a challenge. And, and then, you know, the, probably the third is just kind of like government advocacy, right? Um, we're at the whim of, of politics and, and governments who, you know, we get people who are elected, and um, there there's a sacred promise and trust made by the federal government to tribes. And, some people don't understand that or they think, well, that debt should be paid. 
And, you know, so we were constantly having to um, educate and advocate and we're at the whim of these politicians. And so for me, you know, a lot of it is um, ignorance, uh, some racism, but mostly ignorance. It's what people don't know. So my job is to educate people to the to that sacred promise, to who we are, to, you know, why does Alaska need so much money for infrastructure? Well, when you have to, when it costs, you know, $11 for a gallon of milk, you know, uh, just because of transportation costs and remoteness and things, you, you know, but it's my job to educate people. I, even here in Juneau, you know, I've had elected leaders tell me, well, Richard, Juneau wasn't even a native community. And I'm like, well, gosh, that's funny because this building is on top of our old village site. And if you walk in the hallways of this building, there's pictures of the old village site, you know. So, you know, we've been here for 10,000 years and we have people who move here, you know, two years ago and want to have that Alaskan experience and, you know, want to change everything. And so we got to educate people. And so I, it used to frustrate me, it used to make me angry, but now I take it as opportunities. You know, even Mark, what you're giving me today is a platform to just tell our story and who we are. And hopefully somebody hears it and goes, gosh, you know, I'd like to know more about that. I'd like to visit Kissingham. I'd like to go there and, and maybe I'll buy some artwork or now we do have a restaurant there and maybe they'll support that restaurant and help keep some people in the village, right? Or maybe, you know, they, they see some laws being uh, talked about and they might call their congressman or their senator and say, you know what, I really believe that Indian child welfare is an important law and we need to keep it. Hey, we, we believe Native Americans should be included in the Violence Against Women's Act. You know, things like that. You know, we got to take that opportunity to educate people. I am just uh, blown away at the the vision that you are uh, painting here. And I'm, I'm hearing the um, accessibility is a huge thing. I honestly can't even imagine trying to figure this, this out, untying this knot about preserving cultural heritage and keeping people in these very sacred places uh, like Kassan um, where folks want to be, but also dealing with the reality of a uh, commerce-based economy now. Um, how, are, how are you, how, what are some other examples of you finding ways to square up what was a gift culture for millennia and then all of a sudden took a crash dive right into a capitalist society, you know, less than 200 years ago? What are some of the other things that you're, you're thinking about to um, address these challenges of maintaining this distinct and beautiful and vibrant cultural heritage, but also uh, addressing the reality of this um, financial sovereignty? You know, I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, oftentimes our culture gets so romanticized. You know, and people ask me, well, why economic development? That's that's not very cultural. That's not tribal. And I'm like, are you kidding me? My people invented commerce. Uh, <laughs> don't don't get it uh, mistaken. Right. Because we, we would literally go to war with each other over trade routes and access and ability to trade and to harvest and to make sure that areas weren't over harvested. So we we invented commerce. Um you know, I come from Clinkett and Haida people who we navigated the Pacific Ocean. 
we were going to places like Hawaii and New Zealand and Asia thousands of years ago. Um, we were trading up and down the coast to what is now Mexico, you know. Um, so we had a vibrant system of trade and barter, commerce. And so to me, I think it's a makes make no mistake about it. We should be in it today. You know, we should be leaders. You know, this there's this weird idea of like, oh, if you're so worried about your culture and, and you really want this and that, then give up your outboards and modern technology and go back to canoes. And, and I'm like, that is such an ignorant statement, please. Um, we're, we're vibrant and thriving now, you know, don't, I don't let others talk about us in the past tense. And I sure as heck don't like it when we talk about ourselves in the past tense, I get asked, well, what, how would your people deal with this? And I'm like, well, this is how we are dealing with this. You know, <laughs> it, it's kind of funny how people really want to talk about us in the past tense. Like we're, we're romanticized, you know, I think they've watched uh, Last of the Mohicans one too many times <laughs> and, you know, realize that, you know, our tribes are across the nation are, are vibrant and thriving today. And, you know, I think one of the things that we struggle with is that cultural revitalization where our languages are endangered and without our languages, who are we? And I struggle with that. I'm, I'm not a speaker and, you know, I'm in a, in a position of leadership and, you know, I think, you know, I should be a speaker. Um, but I also know it's not my fault that I wasn't a speaker, right? That was taken from us, um, you know, literally beaten out of us from through church groups, through you know, school groups. Um, you know, a few years ago at the Alaska Federation of Natives, which is a huge gathering of all the natives in Alaska, pretty much. You know, the Presbyterian Church got up and apologized for their role in extinguishing our traditional languages. And, you know, you can get up and say you're sorry. To me, that's meaningless. Show me you're sorry. What has the Presbyterian Church done to um, fix it? I, you know, I'm the president of the largest tribe in Alaska. They haven't reached out to me. They haven't said, you know what, we were a part of this atrocity. We apologize for it. But how can we help normalize your languages in the school system today? How can we help make sure that teachers are readily speaking and available? How do we make sure your people are accredited as teachers? You know, what are they doing about it? Because, man, apologies are meaningless if your actions don't speak to it, right? And I, right. I, I hope I don't offend anybody. And I'm sorry if I do, but you know what? I'm offended that out of 33,000 Clinkets and Haidas, there's less than probably a hundred fluent Clinket speakers left. There's about six or seven fluent Haida speakers left in the United States. Hey, I'm offended. So step off. You know, if you're coming to me and tell me you're offended, hey, look, I'm a product of being offended. You can see that one gets my blood up a little bit. <laughs> Hey, absolutely, and and with good reason. And um, these are these are turbulent waters, and um, I, I think we are in a time of of change. And um, I spoke to uh, Colleen Echohawk, who's running for Seattle uh, City Mayor here. Um, My beloved friend. Yeah, and you know, and I asked her about allyship and what does that mean and she she kind of cut me off and said hey you know what there's 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 being an ally but th that's okay but what what we really need are co-conspirators we need people to and this is 
this is speaking to what you just said, Richard, about um, taking action. Saying words are fine. Saying you're sorry is fine. But in in the recovery world, we make amends. We we must make amends for the things that the people we have injured, um, the things we have done to harm ourselves or others. Um, in your mind, speaking to a larger audience, how can we be co-conspirators? How can we live in a meaningful, intentional way that um, honors the past, but more importantly, is paving the road to a confluence uh, in, in the, the now and in the future? You, you know, I think as a co-conspirator, you stand up and you're demanding the same things and you demand action. You, if you're an elected official, you, you listen and you respond. You know, look, I live in Alaska where the state of Alaska, there's a bill, um, House Bill 123, that's in, in the House right now, to, for the state to actually recognize there's tribes here. We have 229 tribes in Alaska. That's nearly half of the tribes in the nation are right here right? And our own state don't recognize us. And then, you know, we have, I think it's 21, 22 uh, traditional languages, indigenous languages, you know, like seven years ago, they just recognized that they, these languages exist here and that they, they matter. But again, what are they doing about it? Great. You recognize we are here. Well, they still don't recognize we're here. They recognize our languages. Um, to graduate high school, you have to um, take a foreign language. Why not say as a, a prerequisite to graduation, a required class is one of your indigenous languages, you know? And could you imagine the transformation, the, the paradigm shift that would make? Mm -hmm. What would happen is the schools would be required to provide teachers. To provide teachers, I mean, they'd have to pay language folks to teach. That could save our languages right there, you know, and, and it's simple things. It's like one one credit requirement could change everything. You know, Clinkett and Haida right now, we have a Clinkett immersion um, like preschool and it's pretty crazy and fantastic. You got three and four year olds and they're speaking Clinkett. And, you know, it, it's the most beautiful uh, thing I've ever seen and heard. In Heidelberg, we have the same thing happen with the Hotkill, the Haida language. And, you know, it's taking people to stepping up and saying, look, you can help us or not, but we're doing it. And cool. these these teachers are giving up their lives to teach, to make sure the language lives. And so as, you know, co-conspirators, man, step up, contribute. Um, you know, one of the beautiful things we're seeing here in, in Southeast is a lot of non-Native people starting to take the languages you know, to the wow. university and other things. And, and that keeps those available through the university system, right? Because unfortunately it's a, hey, you got to pay to play. And, and they offer the classes to pay the teachers. They, they need to make money. And so when a non-native uh, co-conspirator uh, signs up and takes that class, I think that's a pretty bold statement of support and allyship. And, and you know, those are the kind of things we need. But, you know, hey, if I go to the Presbyterian church, I'd start demanding, all right, you apologize for your role in this. How about we step up and start contributing to it? Um, you know, I, I think that's something that could happen. And, and I think, you know, just starting building um, bridges uh, with each other, communicating, I, th I think is key to everything. 
Um, you know, it's amazing uh, Colleen's a world away, but I, I'm a huge supporter and fan of what she's doing. Um, you know, her, uh, man, there's something about those Echo Hawks because everywhere you look, there's <laughs> one of them doing just like epic things on every level. It's, it's pretty wild. I, I'm a huge fan of Abigail Echo Hawk, Colleen's sister, who's, you know, doing some um, really heart-wrenching and necessary work on, you know, statistics on murder and missing Indigenous women and people. Right. You know, I, I went to a presentation in Seattle a couple of years ago, and Abigail was presenting. And I, I had no clue, and it, it almost knocked me over to find out when a Native American in Washington State goes missing or, or is murdered, they, they could be classified as Latino or African American. They, they don't even care enough about us to classify us as whatever tribe we are, let alone Native American, Alaska Native. And so it's really hard to show statistics, right? Like to back up the, the work. And, and so Abigail's being that force of change. You know, Colleen is making such a difference for our homeless populations that's unfortunately is a huge segment of Seattle, right? And, yeah. you know, when I work with those ladies, so, you know, Alaska Natives make up the largest uh, segment of their populations they're serving in Seattle. It's crazy to me, right? And then when you even drill down further, of the Alaska Natives, the largest population is Clinton Haida's. So that's how I've gotten to know those ladies. And they're, they're also, they grew up in Alaska. So uh, we have those ties and, but they're doing tremendous work and we need to be a part of that. And again, that's meeting our citizens where they're at. What can we do to support the work of like the Seattle Indian health board? And what can we do the work of to support Colleen's efforts at chief Seattle club? And right now it's certainly not enough, but I hope eventually we're going to be, really strong partners with their work. Well, I look, I'm so enthusiastic about all of these ideas, um, meeting people where they are, seeing each other, making roads into one another, finding a, a seat at the table. Um, I'm inspired with this network. Uh, you, you may have heard of uh, Salmon Nation. We're just a group of people trying to do these, these things. And, what I'm struck with when listening to you is you're up in Juneau. Um, you're up in this gorgeous little archipelago uh, in Southeast Alaska. I'm down here in Seattle in traditional Duwamish territory. We share salmon. We share trees. We share mountains. We, we share this, this water that connects us all. Um, do you feel like we're emerging into a time in this bioregion that we're in where we're going to be able to learn from each other and replicate things like you were mentioning chief Seattle club that Colleen's the executive director of. I feel like we're in a time where we can, where we can grow and we can grow as a bioregion, not just in these more defined and micro boxes that we've created. Are you seeing that opportunity as well from where you sit? Brother, you're singing from the same sheet of music as me. Um, you know, I think if we're going to be the change that we need to see, we've, we've got to um, take down these um, silos that were put in, right? We've got to start working together. Um, and, you know, I talked about our history. You know, we, we traveled up and down the coast to Mexico. Um, we should maintain that today. 
we, we, you know, these borders, these invisible lines that have been drawn are the silos that separate us. And we got to remove those. And, you know, I, I think technology is something that's going to do that. We're having this conversation now and now people, you know, I'm kind of intimidated a little bit, but God, you know, and people are going to listen to this and either think, wow, this guy's a real loon or wow, I can't believe what he's saying. And this is awesome. But, you know, people are going to hear it and start knowing and <clears throat> we, we've got to work together. We got to hold each other up, you know, and we've got to build um, those networks and we got to stand on those. You know, we work really closely with Salmon Beyond Borders. We work with um, a lot of these other groups because we're really concerned about the transboundary mines that are happening in Canada that, you know, bleed right out into our waters. And we know some of them have been are already contaminated. You know, they've been mined and, and they're um, leaching contamination into our systems now. It impacts our salmon runs. And look, I, I'm more concerned as, as a um, Quinket man that salmon be here forever, right? But there's so many other people who depend on salmon, you know, economies and fishermen, restaurants. And we should all be in this together. And I think that's kind of the message you're starting to hear. But, you know, I have a sacred obligation that I have to step up and protect these resources and be that voice. But if I don't have these, uh, as Colleen says, co uh, co-conspirators like, uh, you know, my friends, Joe White's and, and Chris Zimmerman and some of these other folks, then we're not going to be successful. We, we, we've got to reach across. We've got to educate. We've got to communicate. We've got to work together. And, and I think we can, and I think we will. Um, and we're seeing more and more of it and it's really exciting and I'm starting to realize, you know, as big as the world seems, how small it really is. You know, um, it's funny how you and I met, you know, what, gosh, 12 or more years ago. And we've got a mm -hmm. lot of the same friends, right? We've got people that yep. we run in the same circles. And how do we take right. advantage of that? How do we build on that? Um, I think that's a platform in of itself. And, you know, everything's about relationships and how we, we treat each other, how we hold each other up, the respect we show. That's how we're going to get things accomplished. And we've got to get through to these elected officials. You know, um, Clink and Haida is really divided by these borders, right? Um, so we represent Clinket and Haida. And the Haida are in British Columbia and Clinket are in the Yukon and we're divided. You know, these lines didn't exist for us and now they do. And we're, we're trying to build relationships. We've taken trips to um, Haida Gwaii because we need the support if we're going to make a difference in this transboundary. The Canadian government doesn't have any reason to listen to us, but they do have every reason to listen to our Haida brothers and sisters in BC as they do our Clinket brothers and sisters in the Yukon. And so, you know, right back, literally right before the pandemic, we were supposed to take a big trip into the Yukon to visit our friends there. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, but as soon as we can, we're going to. But we, we've got to build these um, bridges and, and take down the silos. We had a big week here in the United States of America. Um, there was a verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. Yeah. Um, and incredibly powerful. Um, do you feel like we're at a turning point for BIPOC people in this country um, we've had some false starts. We've had some 
moments of crisis that have been followed by more of the same. I, for one, um, and, and I know many other people, and I know it's talked about in the mainstream now, feel that indigenous leadership is critical to navigating out of this disconnection with the earth and back into balance with things. Do you, do you agree with that? And, and if so, why? I, I totally agree with that, but I do, I, I think and this may be controversial, but I, I think I disagree that we're at a turning point. I don't, I don't think we're there yet. You know, I mm. think that um, I, I watched the news. I was so relieved to see the verdict but I kept seeing people comment about justice being served. And um, gosh, I think it might've been Colleen Echohawk who said, you know, if justice had been served, this would have never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that resonates with me big time. Right. And I, and I think, I don't mean this in some pessimistic way, but I think the work is still ahead of us. Do you know how often I have to argue with my own people about black lives matter? And they were like, well, all lives matter. And and you're just furthering the divide. And I'm like, no, all lives should matter. But until you can say black lives matter without getting this visceral, angry response, then it just proves the point that they don't, you know, and we're, we're so quick to divide and condemn and fight rather than stand up for each other to say, you know, if you really believe all lives matter, then stand up for them. You know, and I think that's what's necessary. I think we have to um, stand up for each other. And look, I think all lives matter. Of course it does, right? But I think as a social movement, you can't say all lives matter until you can say things like Black Lives Matter or, you know, look what's happening with our Asian community right now. I, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous. Over These are people born in America. Whether they are or not shouldn't matter. Maybe they just moved here. I don't care. They're a human being. I know to be clinket literally means to be a human being. Everybody should be treated with love and respect. Everybody deserves that. And, you know, we're getting into these social arguments over what kind of man George Floyd was. I don't care what kind of man he was. I care that he was a man. Mm -hmm. I don't care if he was intoxicated. I don't care if he was resisting arrest. He was in custody. The video shows it. These are trained law officers. And hey, I wouldn't want their job. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, they're put in impossible situations, but sometimes they're the wrong people put in impossible situations that do heinous things and make it worse. And that needs to be called out. That needs to be dealt with. And, uh, you know, the idea that you can say that justice has been served really kind of rankles me. It, 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 it lights something in me that's really upsetting to me. Like it kind of disrupts my kind of Zen core. Mm. I'm just like, you know what? Um, no person should feel persecuted because of their color, their skin or who they are. There's such ignorance out there. I mean, you know, I'm I'm very pale skinned. I've had people, well, you look too white to be a tribal leader. Like, come on, th- th- we're supposed to be in the year 2021, and it feels like we're, you know, still like in the 1960s South. And uh, you know, my grandparents, my parents, grew up when there were still signs that said "No dogs, no Indians" in Ketchikan, where they grew up. Wow. 
you know, their, their parents really lived it and dealt with it. So, you know, when people make those comments, it, it's really disturbing. But I also know racism is born of ignorance because nobody's born racist. And I think that we've got to lead with love. We have to forgive. You know, you, we talk about recovery. Big part of recovery is forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes forgiving ourselves is, is the hardest part. But, you know, we, we've got to forgive and we've got to believe that somebody can have ignorant ideals, but it's because they uh, don't know. They don't have that education and we got to educate them. And I think that if we don't, it's not going to change. And I think you got to call, call it out when you see it. But I think be hard on the issue, not the person. Um, one of the most uh, precious people I know, uh, Cheryl Fairbanks, is uh, really authoritarian in, in tribal courts and, and healing. And she always says, be hard on the issue, not the person. And, I, and that's, that's slowly becoming a mantra of my own. Um, if you follow me on social media, You'll probably hear that I've, or you'll see that I've been doing cold water dips, and mm-hmm. that's part of my healing, right? And I go in with intent, and I carry these issues in that are weighing me down. And one of the things that I keep telling myself is, "Be hard on the issue, not the person." And so I'm trying to carry Cheryl's mantra into my heart. I am so glad you said that because we're riding the same wave here. Uh, I, I was just going to turn the conversation a little bit into wellness and you've inspired me on a mere tons of fronts. I, I follow along with your cold water dips. I've been doing two minute cold showers to sort of just try, you know, that's a city guy's way to emulate, uh, what you're doing. In, I'd much rather be doing it in Kassan or, or Juno, but, um, listen, I have watched you transform. You look incredible right now. And when we met in Kassan, you were twice the man physically that you are now. And I have seen you and I've watched you on social media and um, talked to our our mutual friends. Can, Can you please describe for us your wellness transformation that you are still continually in? We all are, but you are in right now and um, what it means to you today. Yeah. Um, I went through a really rough patch in life and, and went down a road I'm not proud of, right? And, um, and it led to some real trauma, and that was addiction and, and getting into drugs. And um, went through some pretty scary stuff through that. And, and when I got clean, yeah, I turned to our culture, but I also really didn't do the work I needed to on myself as far as counseling and things. and. Uh, to kind of shelter myself and, and protect myself, I gained an enormous amount of weight um, beyond beyond unhealthy. Um, I mean, right now I'm still overweight and unhealthy, but for those that know me, I don't go anywhere right now or people don't stop me to tell me how good I look. You know, I've, I've dropped 265 pounds today. <sighs> I mean, which Incredible. is almost embarrassing to say, but right now, you know, I've come to a place where I own it. I'm not embarrassed by it anymore. You know, yeah, one of the the crazy things is when I was like, I knew I needed to lose weight. I didn't want people to see me struggle. I didn't want them to see me like 
out of breath or all these stupid things that like, are you kidding? They saw you at your worst. It's like, I think that everybody would cheer you on to see you put some effort into getting healthy. And, and that's been the case. So, you know, put in the work, counseling, my um, culture, everything. And so I just started moving and uh, moving and losing weight and eating right. And, you know, it's a constant battle, um, but it, it, in a way, in a lot of ways, it gets easier. And the other is how um, social media is such a weird thing because it can be so negative. But for me, I, I, I use it as my accountability piece. And so I'm very open about my story, um, all of it from addictions to, you know, the weight issues and everything else. Um, because I think if you're going to be in leadership, you have to be honest, uh, not just with yourself, but with everybody else. And and I think people need to see you're vulnerable and you're human and, and the struggles and that we can overcome them. And look, today might be a bad day, but it don't make a bad life, you know? And so I just really um, do that. And, you know, you see, I, I put all these positive mantras on, on Facebook and, and different things. And a lot of people, you know, people really appreciate it. Some may not, you know, but it's, it's a constant reminder to myself and an example to others. And, you know, I've traveled and had complete strangers come up to me and thank me like, cause they see it and people share it, you know, so people I don't even, that aren't my friends see it. And they were like, I really appreciate your positivity. I really appreciate you telling your story. And, and um, yeah, I've been so uplifted by everybody else that, but one of the things I keep telling, or people keep telling me lately is how much it uplifts them. And I don't, you know, it's, it's kind of a humbling experience to think anything you can do can positively affect others and what a gift that is. And, you know, you talk about amends, you know, through my recovery, I, I carried a lot of guilt, mm-hmm. um, you know, to be in leadership and to do, do those things and to fall. I was really hard on myself for a long time and I've learned to forgive myself. Um, you know, when you met me, I would have never looked in a mirror and said, I like me. I would have never said, I like who I am. And I've learned to do that. And, and, and I mean it, I'm not perfect. I, I'm every day I wake up and this sounds kind of funny and, but it's the truth is a number of years ago, our, one of our programs brought our elders together and they put down on paper what our tribal values are. If you can Google it, it's our Southeast, you know, traditional tribal values. And, I, I try to live my life by those and, and it's what keeps me kind of going forward. And I just kind of every morning I kind of center myself. Okay. What did I do yesterday? Did I follow those? If I didn't, if I made a mistake, if I treated someone bad, if I did this, how do I do it better today? Forgive myself for yesterday, do it better today. Right. And, you know, Mark, you talk about your recovery I think you probably understand exactly what I'm talking about. You got to forgive yourself. You got to forgive those who you might've think wronged you. Cause if you hold on to that, you'll never get better. And that was for me. I had to forgive. I had to move on. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really hard thing to do, but it the is. rewards, like, I'll just tell you, man, um, I have some autoimmune issues. I've, I've learned that actually, 
they are better when I eat right. I've lost the weight as a byproduct. I feel better every day. Man, there was a time where I was like taking 20 different medications a day. Now I'm wow. down now I'm down to four or five. You know, it's it's for me that's pretty miraculous. My blood sugar numbers, I was they were like, You're gonna be diabetic, there's no question. And now I got my numbers down to a level where they're like, Hey, you're a healthy human guy. You know, and, and that's I didn't you know, when you met me, you mentioned I was twice the man. I didn't think I'd ever get to this to this day. And I still got a ways to go, but for the first time in my life I can visualize that in that end point where I'm going to be at that healthy level I want to be. And, uh, you know, I think people need to know, like, you can do it. If I can do it, God knows anybody can. I'm so inspired by you, man. I, I thank you so much for sharing this. Um, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, uh, in terms of looking in the mirror and not, I couldn't, I had a counselor tell me that you got to learn to can you say that you love yourself? And I honestly couldn't, not, not at all. And, um, I've learned in recovery, there is, there is a way to do that. There is a way for hope and, um, to live a life without resentment and without shame and guilt and to live in a place that is in the rooted in the moment and in love and service for ourselves and for one another. Um, and uh, in all sincerity, your story, your continued journey has been a, absolute bedrock for me in in my own so i i just want to take a moment to thank you for yes thank you thank you can i ask Um, you something yeah do do you find now that you have more empathy than you ever did yeah because it's not all about me you know the classic alcoholic you know it's completely self-centered and um which is, you know, most of all of this stuff is rooted in fear. But when you get out of this fear and then you get out of this self-centered trap, then lo and behold, wow, you you really care about the people around you, the planet that you're on, the uh, the air that you breathe, the water you drink. And I mean, I think, you know, clearly we've we've had a proclivity for that anyway, but the level of feeling is exponential. And um, I... I've never felt it my my whole life really this way. Yeah. I I found that I feel like this level of empathy and compassion, I just didn't know I was capable of. And it really makes the loving and forgiving and all that so much easier when you embrace it. And, you know, the things that um, when I was a young guy who was quick to go to hands like now I'm just like, I would never imagine like, Oh, I need to go, you know, kick the crap out of this guy. I, I could never even imagine being that guy now, you know, I'd be like, Hey man, can we talk about this? <laughs> and, you know, just, just such, I feel like a, a better person, which makes that being able to say, I like who I am easier, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know? And uh, yeah. And it, it just, I think creator, gives us the path we're supposed to be on. Sometimes we don't recognize it. And I think that creator gave me these experiences so I can do what I'm doing now. Yes. In, in a better way. And, you know, I've always considered myself a service leader, but now I understand what it means, you know? And so I don't know. I, I, I feel pretty blessed to do what I do. 
Yes. Uh, here, here. And I, I echo that too. I feel the same way and about all of it. I couldn't um, possibly appreciate it like I do now sincerely in my heart uh, without going through the gauntlet. All right. One couple couple big important questions here as we wrap this up for today. And by the way, I think this is this is definitely part one. We're, we're going to continue this because I, I, I need to draw inspiration from what you're doing. And, and frankly, I think you've got a lot of ideas that are going to benefit the uh, the rest of the country, not just uh, Salmon Nation and Southeast Alaska. So for, first off, probably the most important question of the day here is, how are the Seahawks going to do this year? Uh, I think this is going to be a great year. I'm so excited and I'm really hopeful this is going to be a year I get to go in person again. Uh, it was really hard to not be there this year. And it's one of the things in, in my recovery, I decided to do things for myself and going to games was one of those. So, and thank God it looks like we got Russell back. So, yep. Yeah. All right, man. Well, that's where I can meet you. We, we, if we can do this thing, I'm all vaxxed up second dose this last Saturday, super stoked. If we can make this thing happen, we're going to go to a game this year. Let's do it. I'm totally right. vaxxed. All right, man. So, um, here's the, here's the rapid fire. Um, let's pretend that your house was on fire and you could only grab one physical thing out of the house. What would it be? Uh, I have this bag of my regalia. Um, I would grab that. <laughs> Perfect. Um, okay. Now it's your spiritual house. What are the two characteristics about you that you would pull out from the flames? To keep? Yep, to, to pull out of the fire, if you could just keep the two. Um, my empathy. Yep. Uh, and, and I guess my love for people. All right. Now, if there was one, one thing that you, could, you would leave in the fire to burn, to be purified, to, to let go of, what would that be? Ego. Boy, you're good at this. <laughs> my friend... Um, Richard Peterson, uh, president of the Tlingit Haida people, Southeast Alaska. Um, what an honor to get to connect again today. Thank you so much for your time, your empathy, your wisdom. Uh, I can't wait to continue this conversation further down the trail. We got a lot to talk about. Thank you so much for being here. And, and where can people find what you're doing? If people want to look you up on social media and check out the incredible work that you're doing, uh, how can people find you? Well, I think you can start with uh, Clink and Haida. Just Google Clink and Haida, our Facebook, social media, our website. Um, you can see that. Um, I'm looking forward to part two because I feel like I really, you know, I get, you gave me a lot of credit today. And I, I would love to talk about the people that I owe a lot of credit to, the people I serve with, my counsel. Um, man, you know, I don't do any of this alone. And so really blessed with that. But yeah, check out the work we're doing. We have um, a series on YouTube. If you look up Plinkett and Haida, we have a channel there. We've done some really great kind of lunchtime chats and, and different discussions that you can check out, um, some celebration stuff and just who we are. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting, I think. Uh, and you can learn, you know, one of our best episodes is when we uh, did the one with uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, community and uh, got to talk about that and, you know. And how about if people want to follow along with your story on social? Um, I, it's under my Clinket name. So if it's, uh, I, I don't know if you guys can put it in there because it's pretty hard. 
But um, sure. I go by my Clinkit name pretty much on everything, I think. I'm not sure what my TikTok is. I, I recently, I did TikTok because a friend of mine suggested that we needed to normalize our, our cultural um, practices, like the cold water dipping. So I didn't start doing it to say, hey, look at me. It was like more like, hey, look what we're doing. Um, but I, I was stopped. I had a medical appointment and the lab technician, she looked at me and I was, I was expecting her to say, Hey, are you the Clink and Hyder guy? And she goes, Hey, are you the guy who walks into water? And I was like, Whoa, I didn't know really that people really do follow you on TikTok and things like that. And so um, that's fantastic. I can share that. I'll send you an email. And if you want to share all that, you can. Great. Well, thank you again. Uh, what a, what an honor, what a treat. And we'll continue this conversation down the trail. So long for now. Hey, thank you. Be well. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land waters, and other inhabitants today.